Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. recording of Fruit Loops episode 138. Tis the season for scaring the shit out of you. So happy Halloween and thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you. And uh, just as an FYI, this podcast contains adult themes and language and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race and murder. So listener discretion is advised. Hide your kids. No, Fruit Loops <laughs> is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied, white dudes. What? No, I'm telling <laughs> And I am telling you. Now, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Say it with me. Just kidding. Allegedly. <laughs> And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It's not her fault. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. <laughs> so, who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we are talking about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, Ooh. Texas's most infamous unsolved murders. In 1946, an unidentified assailant was stalking and killing the residents of Texarkana. Five people were killed and three were wounded. This story was researched by our new researcher, Maria. Welcome to the Fruit Loops team, Maria. Yes, hip hop air horns for Maria. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Maria. So uh, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. It's great to be here at She Podcasts Live. Mm -hmm. It's a great event. Um, very organized. Oh, my God. <laughs> the most organized. This is the best live event I've ever been to in yeah. my entire life. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, agreed. We made it. Feeling good. Great to be here live. Um 
what else can I say besides it being a very well run um, event because it's run by women and uh, we do amazing things. Uh, we saw Havelina last night. Yeah, and <laughs> I I've lived inside of our room. I know. At first, I thought it was a goat. And uh, Beth, right away, because she's been here a long time, goes, oh, look at that cute little javelina. First of all, <laughs> what I know is that javelinas are dangerous. And you, Beth, you were just over there like, oh, he's so cute. And I'm like just waiting for him to attack somebody, like just waiting for blood and guts to be something. yeah, flying everywhere. And he eventually left and disappeared into the night. But that was, it was pretty, pretty cool. exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, normally we would get into the listener letter portion of our show at this point, um, followed by a sound effect. Here we go. (laughs) Hello, angels. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, Now, as I said, we usually take this time to read some listener letters and thank our Patreon supporters for give and give them a personal shout out tune. Um, But since we are here at She Podcast Live um, and our patrons also helped get us here, uh, we wanted to thank all of you here and our patrons at home for for all the She Podcast uh, possibilities that ha- have come to fruition today. So um, this song is dedicated to all of you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. It's close to midnight. Something evil's lurking in the dark. <laughs> We're in pajamas. We see the sight that almost starts your heart. You hear record, but terror takes the sign before you make it. Yeah, (laughs) you call support. They tell you that there's nothing they can do. Try to reboot. (laughs) Cause this she podcast, she podcasts live. And no one's gonna stop us from podcasting here tonight. Yeah, this she podcast, woo podcast live. You're fighting for your life inside a killer thriller tonight. Okay, very I love it. Very sorry, but thank you. <laughs> so, uh, okay, uh, back to it. Now, Beth, remind us who's our subject today after all that foolishness. <laughs> today we're talking about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. This story inspired the cult classic horror film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. The tagline for the film was, quote, in 1946, This man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. Santa Maria. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, um, all right. Let's get into some stats. Okay. The Phantom Killer, a.k.a. the Moonlight Murderer, a.k.a. the Texarkana Murderer, a.k.a. the Texarkana (laughs) Moonlight Murders, a.k.a. the Phantom Slayer case takes place in 1946 in, you guessed it, Texarkana, Texas. Can you believe it, girls? Uh, (laughs) There were eight eight victims and five murder victims, three survivors. Uh, The murder victims are Rest in Power Y'all, Betty Jo Booker, was 15, Paul Martin, 16, Richard Griffin, 29, Polly Ann Moore, 17, and Virgil Starks, 37. They were all killed with uh, by gunshot. And the survivors uh, were Jimmy Hollis, 25, Mary Jean LeRae, 19, and Katie Starks, 36. Now, the perpetrator was never identified or caught. His MO was to stalk and ambush the victims. He wore a white hood Slash pillowcase, who knows? It was a white cloth over his head with the eyes cut out. Uh, he attacked unsuspecting couples of men and women. And he used a gun to beat. He used the gun for multiple. It was a multi-purpose gun. He beat people with it. He sexually assaulted people with it. And he shot his victims with it. Uh, and uh, only one surviving victim described the perp as black. In any case, it appears that it was a man. And it's possible, impossible to know for sure, but he might still be alive to this day. We don't know. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? 
I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though, in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time to fess up. <laughs> it's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. (laughs) I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. (laughs) Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. (laughs) There (laughs) is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So, Beth, Uh, Now it's time for the setting. Take us there. The setting is Texarkana, which is located on Caddo Native American territory. The Caddo inhabited what we know today as East Texas, Southern Arkansas, and Oklahoma. They lived in earthwork mounds and have a history dating back to 800 CE, uh, a.k.a. AD. Wait a minute. What C-E-A-D? What what <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> C E means common era. Oh, okay. 
it does that just take out the Christianity part of it? Yes. Okay. Now, as white settlers moved into the East to settle the area, enslaved people were also brought in and Native Americans were pushed out. By the 19th century, the Caddo had left the area, first living in Louisiana, then later in Texas and Oklahoma. The last of the settlements, Caddo Hadacho Village, was abandoned around the year 1778. Caddo people today speak of themselves as being Caddo Hadacho or Hasina, meaning, quote, our people, unquote. As of 2017, they are approximately 6,000 members strong. The area that would later become Texarkana lay on the Southwest Trail, a 19th century pioneer route that was the primary passageway for American settlers bound for Texas. The Southwest Trail became a major immigration route in the 1820s. By the 1830s, more than 80% of the Arkansas Territory population had entered through that Southwest Trail. Texarkana has an interesting history. It was founded in 1873 at a railroad junction, and there are actually two Texarkanas. One half is in Texas and the other half is in Arkansas. The name is a portmanteau of Texas, Arkansas, and nearby Louisiana. Portmanteau means mix. Yes. Okay. These twin cities of Texarkana have their own separate municipalities, but share a federal building that straddles the state line. The only federal building in the U.S. to do so. Wow. Hip hop air horns. Yeah. Uh, it is also located on the aptly named State Line Avenue, a road that follows approximately 11 miles of the Texas Arkansas Arkansas state line <laughs> dividing the two cities. Texarkana began as a railroad and lumber center and was a junction which connected nine railway systems. Mm. Early on, Texarkana was a frontier boomtown with all the lawlessness that comes with that. There were saloons, gambling halls, and brothels aplenty. Mm. <laughs> In late May 1880, racial unrest, often described as Texarkana's race riot, erupted in Texarkana. It should be noted that this was 15 years after slavery ended and just three years after Reconstruction failed. So tension had been brewing for a very long time between yeah. black and white folks. And according to newspaper reports, the trouble started as a land dispute between a black man identified identified as only as Dr. Cromwell and a white railroad worker named Connor. Cromwell and Connor owned adjoining land, and Dr. Cromwell, who was black, had a had built a fence on Connor's property. Connor tore up the fence, and Cromwell responded by attacking Connor with a club. Connor's wife heard the attack and ran out to give her husband a gun. Connor shot at Cromwell and missed, and Cromwell escaped. He was later arrested, but was freed on bond. So the next day, Cromwell was accused of attacking Connor's wife. Where the hell did that story come from? <laughs> Quote, tearing her clothing literally off, unquote. But her screams roused the neighbors and he fled. Uh, he was again arrested and the sheriff, fearing trouble, hid him in an unknown location. So welcome to Culture Corner. This is a racist tale as old as time. Now, the protection of white womanhood has been used as a means to justify violence and murder of black lives throughout history. The story Never has to be true, though, yeah. uh, to result in a truly deadly and dangerous situation for any black person in proximity to a white person who has the power to lynch them and believes the story. Yeah, I kind of think the story was probably bullshit. Agree. Yeah. That night, between 30 and 60 white men, not knowing that Cromwell had been moved, descended on the jail intending to lynch him. Black men also descended on the jail in an attempt to defend him. As you might expect, this did not go well. Members of the white mob began shooting at any black person that they encountered. No white men were injured. But it was reported that five black people were wounded, with three expected to die. The next day, there was a rumor that a large number of black men were coming to the town from the nearby countryside and that they were threatening to burn down the Arkansas side of Texarkana. Uh -oh. White residents armed themselves in preparation for the attack, but no attack materialized. <laughs> so they're all just chilling there with yeah. their They're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So the la last lynching in Texarkana was in the early 1940s when a black man accused of raping a white woman Again. was dragged down the Broad Street and hanged. Um, another thing that should be uh, mentioned about this um, constant story that never ha has to be true but is used often in, in in before 
the incitement of um, violence uh, is that um, white men are also afraid that black people will do to them what was done, what they what they have done to other people. So just let that sink in. <laughs> but um, anyway, so the FBI investigated this, but surprisingly, uh, or not, the murders, the murderers were never publicly identified. In the 1940s, the population of Texarkana was estimated to be around 17,000 people, with almost half the population being black citizens. Between 1940 and 1950, the town's population boomed due to the production of bullets at the Lone Star Army Ammunition Plant for World War II efforts uh, creating jobs. So, but Texarkana was segregated. Separate schools had been established for black and white students on both sides of the state line, with black schools adhering to rules and budgets set by school boards with no black members. So Jeez. that, see, <laughs> how, good. how can you, uh, how can you uh, govern how, us? How can you? <laughs> without letting us be a part of <laughs> these conversations. So Texas also operated this, but boy, oh boy, Texas. Am I right? Yeah. So Texas also operated the city's only higher education institution, Texarkana Junior College, which only served white students. In 1952, two years before Brown versus Board of Education, nine black students from Dunbar High School sued Texarkana College, claiming their admission to the college was denied solely because of race. The suit was dismissed in 1955, nearly a year after the, the Brown v. Board of Education, a U.S. Supreme Court decision. One of the arguments for dismissal was that black schools did not produce oh boy, students on par with the white schools and therefore could not produce students fit for admittance to white colleges. But that's so f- messed up. It is. And it's in <laughs> writing. It's black and white. Yeah, People can yeah. go back and see and who said that. that. Yeah. <laughs> That decision was nullified and reversed on appeal, but it wasn't until September 10th, 1956, that black students first attempted to enter the campus. As the two lone black students attempted to enter the building, they were continuously blocked as a crowd of white people formed a wall between them and the entrance. All they wanted to do was go to school and get an education. Pretty benign um, unwarranted of such violence and yes, anger. Yes. Uh, now, the white people hurled racial insults and began to threaten violence. So the two students left. Four Texas Rangers and two local police officers were present, but would not escort the students into the school because, quote, Rangers were under strict orders to stay out of the integration dispute. Shouldn't have been a dispute because the Supreme Court said, fuck out of here. <laughs> so the two students never came back. And it wasn't until June 12th, 1963, that Texarkana College was officially desegregated. Here's a fun fact about Texarkana. Ooh. Composer and pianist Scott Joplin, a.k.a. the King of Ragtime, <laughs> grew up in Texarkana. Ah. Among the, mo- the popular ragtime compositions by Joplin are The Entertainer and The Maple Leaf Rag. No way! Yeah. Everybody knows The Entertainer, yeah. except I can't think of it right now. Yes! So in Texarkana, there is an annual showing of the 1976 movie based on the murders called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. There was also a 2014 remake of the same film. I saw it and I liked it. Highly (laughs) fictionalized, the phantom killer in these films had a hook a la Candyman style, but was portrayed by Bud Davis. I mean, Bud, not Bud. Bud Davis, a (laughs) white man. Now, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. The Town That Dreaded Sundown is an ironic and interesting name for a serial murder case that took place in Texas in the midst of Jim Crow. Yeah. A sundown town is an all-white municipality or neighborhood in the United States that practices a form of racial segregation by excluding non-whites via some combination of discriminatory laws, intimidation, or violence. I'm doing a commercial for it. (laughs) The term came from the signs posted... That colored people had to leave by sundown. The practice was not restricted to the southern states. So uh, we see you as <laughs> at least until the early 1960s. Northern states could be nearly as inhospitable to black travelers as states like Alabama or Georgia. 
Now, we couldn't find any sources stating for sure that Texarkana was in fact a sundown town. We know that the population was historically 50% black and white, but we can only speculate. However, <laughs> Scottsdale, where we're sitting right now, was in fact a sundown town. We seen to you, Scottsdale. We seen to you. <laughs> Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that, plus... We will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So uh, now we're going to get into the uh, alleged Texarkana Moonlight Murderer's early life. What do you got, Beth? Anything? <laughs> well, normally, uh, as you said, we would discuss the killer's early life and what may have led him or her to commit the crimes. But the killer in this case is unknown. There were some suspects, however, and we'll get into them later. All right. Timeline time. Hit it, Beth. The year was 1946. Jimmy Hollis, who was 25, and Mary Jean Larry, 19, had begun dating early in the year. And on February 22nd, they went on a double date with Jimmy's brother, Bob, and his girlfriend. I didn't realize that it's Valentine's time time. Oh, yeah, it is. Valentine's Day time. Del Whatever. Yeah. It's a season of love. Yes. After dinner and a movie, the couple dropped Bob and his date off at their respective homes and then drove to an isolated, secluded road to park. They got there at about 11.45 p.m. and were at the spot for about 10 minutes when Jimmy got out of the car to look at the stars. Suddenly, a man shined a flashlight in his face. Jimmy could not see the man because of the light, and he was at first very confused, thinking that this was some kind of a prank. When he realized that the man had a pistol pointed at him, it dawned at it on him that this was no joke. The man said, quote, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say, unquote. He then told Jimmy to take off his pants. Although still confused, Jimmy did as he was told, but the man pistol whipped him anyway. He hit Jimmy in the head so hard and the resulting sound was so loud that initially Mary Jean thought he'd been shot, mm. but the sound was of Jimmy's skull being fractured. Mary had by that time gotten out of the car, retrieved Jimmy's wallet from his pants and offered it to the man, indicating that there was no money. The man said he didn't believe her and demanded her purse. 
Mary told him that she had no purse. The man said he didn't believe her. So many lies. And also hit her either with the gun or the flashlight. She fell to the ground but was able to get up. The man then ordered Mary to run. She ran in one direction, but the man then demanded that she run in a different direction. So she did. He then caught up with her and tackled her to the ground. Then he asked her why she ran. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if if it wasn't such a like terrible real thing, you would think this was a movie a, yeah. a scene out of a movie. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so the masked man proceeded to sexually assault her with the barrel of a gun, but after a few seconds, he apparently was startled by some passing headlights and he fled. Mary Jean got up and ran to a nearby home, pleading with the occupants to call the police. Meanwhile, Jimmy managed to get up and flag down a car. The occupants of the car would not allow Jimmy to get in, but said that they would find a phone and call an ambulance. But because Mary had already gotten help, an ambulance arrived shortly after Jimmy had flagged down the car. Jimmy spent 12 days in the hospital, and he and Mary Jean lived to give their accounts to the police. Mary Jean told police that her attacker was a light-skinned black man with a white bag over his head. Something like a pillowcase with holes cut out for eyes. When Jimmy regained consciousness after about a week in a coma, and he was well enough to speak to police, he told police that he believed the attacker had been a white man, about 30 years old. But he admitted that he only had a vague recollection of events. Um, I was going to mention this only just popped into my head, that sometimes Black people who are light-skinned pass for white. Yeah. Uh, but to the untrained eye, look white. Yeah. For example, I think Meghan Markle, I think, is a good example for somebody who passes. Not everybody realized yeah. that she was black. I, her, I don't think I did realize that she was black until uh, later. Yeah. See, yeah, to the untrained eye. Her edges give her away every time. <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, because the accounts varied and with the strange addition of the white bag with eye holes, police were suspicious of the couple and thought that perhaps they actually knew the man and were keeping it a secret. But after investigating and finding no viable suspects, police and the public gravitated toward Mary Jean's account at the time. Of course they did. <laughs> Just about a month later, Richard Griffin, 29, and Pollyann Moore, 17, who had been dating for about six weeks, spent the evening of March 23rd at a cafe having dinner with Richard's sister and her boyfriend. Richard was a World War II veteran and a carpenter. Polly had just graduated from high school the year before and was living in a boarding house. The age difference these days, uh, he was 29, she was 17, would definitely be an issue. But back in 1946, this was not unusual. Hmm. Now, the next morning... On March 24th, 1946, at about 8.30 a.m., a motorist was driving on Ridge Road, known as a lover's lane, and noticed Richard's 1941 Oldsmobile parked on the side of the road. He stopped and looked inside the car and saw two people inside. At first, he thought they were sleeping, and then he realized that something wasn't right. The man inside the car was kneeling between the front seats, and the woman in the back was face down. There was also blood. The motorist called it into the police. When police arrived, they soon realized that the couple had each been shot in the back of the head, execution style. It was Richard and Polly. Richard was later identified by the vehicle, and Polly was identified by a class ring she wore engraved with her initials. Richard's pockets had been turned inside out, and he'd actually been shot twice. Polly Ann had been shot once, and she'd been sexually assaulted. Blood was found inside the car, but also outside the car, congealed on a patch of grass. I love the word congealed. Anyway, a <laughs> 30 a 32 shell casing possibly from a Colt pistol was also found on the scene. Police believe the couple was shot outside of the vehicle and then placed back into the vehicle post-mortem. Footprints were found near the crime scene, presumed to be the killers, but frustratingly, the footprints were washed away that night by a rainstorm. Police offered a $500 reward for the killer, but all that did was lead to 100 plus false leads. <laughs> Three suspects were brought in for having bloody clothing, but all three were cleared. Public panic began to set in and people began patrolling lovers' lanes. Yeah, I, I, I once said police were doing it, those Texas Rangers, yeah. as well as vigilantes. Yes. Which 
that's enough to keep me very far away from any uh, area. So the following month on April 12th, 1946, Betty Jo Booker, 15, performed on her saxophone with the band The Rhythm Ayers at the Veterans Hall. Beattie had plans after the gig to meet up with Paul Martin, who was 16, a friend since kindergarten. Paul had relocated to another town with his family, but was spending the weekend in Texarkana hanging out with friends. Betty Jo was last seen getting into Paul's car around 1.30 a.m. on April 13th. Neither made it home. Paul's body was found about 6.30 a.m. along a rural road, having been shot multiple times. Betty was nowhere to be found. A search party was put together and Betty's body was eventually found behind a tree around 11.30 a.m., about two miles away from where Paul had been found. She had been raped and shot twice. Paul's 1946 Club Coupe, with the keys still in the ignition, was found nearly three miles away. Both had been shot with a 32 caliber gun, presumably a Colt, as was allegedly used in the first attack, but was also a very common gun at the time. Betty's saxophone was missing. It was thought that the killer had stolen the saxophone, and a man who tried to sell a saxophone about a week later in a music store in Corpus Christi became a, a suspect. He was arrested and found with bloody clothing, but no saxophone. He was later cleared. Several months later, the saxophone was found in the woods nearby where Betty's body had been found. After Betty's and Paul's murders, the community really began to freak out. Rumors and gossip flew, which hindered the investigation. The reward for a suspect was raised to $1,700, and that's like twenty-five k in today's dollars. Groups of vigilantes prowled through the neighborhoods. Fun. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. It's not fun. It's like January 6th, but in your own in house your, or in your neighborhood. neighborhood. Yeah. Now, when men were away, women would stay at the Hotel Grimm in downtown Texarkana for mutual safety. People started to buy guns and create their own lock systems. The Texarkana Gazette gave the masked murderer the name the Phantom Killer. Less than a month later, on May 3rd, 1946, Katie Starks, who was 36, went to bed early and was lying in bed trying to sleep. Her husband, Virgil Starks, who was 37, was sitting in the sitting room listening to a radio show. Katie had just asked Virgil to turn down the radio when she heard the sound of glass breaking and went back to the living room. She found Virgil in his chair bleeding, having been shot twice through the window in the living room. Katie was trying to get to the phone to call for help when she was also shot twice. As she heard someone trying to enter the home through the back window, Katie escaped through the front door with a bullet stuck under her tongue, Ooh. having broken her jaw and splintering several teeth. She managed to get a, to a neighboring home for help, and she survived. Virgil, unfortunately, did not. Katie's survival story is quite harrowing. I, yes. I just, wow. Yeah. W-O-W, sis. Now, <laughs> over 30 police officers were shortly on the scene, setting up a blockade and questioning everyone in the vicinity. Bloodhounds tracked a scent going from the house to the highway, and it was thought that this was where the shooter had parked their car and then made their escape. Bloodhounds, I feel a culture <laughs> corner coming on about dogs. Say what? <laughs> there is sort of this black conspiracy uh, theory that dogs are racist, and it's true true that humans have employed dogs as partners and protectors for millennia, but there is an extensive historical use of dogs against racial um, uh, minorities or ethnic yeah. Uh, minorities, including um, during slavery, dogs were used to hunt escaped slaves. Um, dogs may not be racist, but they've been used in a racially biased, violent manner. So in the context of Texas, Plus Jim Crow South and the employment of bloodhounds speaks to how terrified white folks were because there were people being murdered senselessly, of course. But it also speaks to the terror that not one source we used has stated inflicted on the black residents as a result of their fear of the fear felt by white white people in their community. Yeah. Police were reluctant to link this last crime to the previous attacks due to the nature of the location and age of the victims. Also, the weapon was a 22 caliber, unlike the weapon the Phantom Killer had used, which was a 32 caliber. However, police still investigated this crime as if it was related to the others, and it has been linked to the story ever since. Hmm. Following the murder of Virgil Stark, state 
state-of-the-art police equipment was shipped in from Austin, Texas, the big city, (laughs) including a mobile radio station which allowed police to communicate via two-way radios, which was revolutionary at the time. Wow. So, yes, (laughs) would you believe it? Now we're going to get into the investigation What's next, Beth? In the wake of the murders and no actual suspects, the Texas Rangers became involved in investigating the murders. The Texas Rangers and local vigilantes patrolled lovers' lanes. Some sat in cars as decoys trying to lure in the killer with others sitting in the bushes nearby, ready to pounce. Uh, uh-oh, another culture <laughs> corner coming on. <laughs> Shimmying into culture corner. Uh, so the Texas Rangers have a very racist and very xenophobic past. Uh, not only do dogs have a, a racist history against um, uh, Black people in the United States, the Texas Ranger... Um, uh, have a messy past to stay, to say the least. That includes um, murder, uh, terror, uh, particularly in Texas. Um, the link between racial violence and Texas law enforcement goes all the way back to the state's original police force. That's right, the Texas Rangers. <laughs> uh, they the, were once the most celebrated state law enforcement agency in U.S. history. Uh, but that's because history has been whitewashed and um, told by only um, some people. It was uh, They were established in 1835. Uh, popular mythology has long cast the Texas Rangers as the law and order good guys of the Old West, dealing out tough but much needed frontier justice. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's shows like The Lone Ranger. Never saw it. But The Lone <laughs> Ranger was actually black, by the way. Anyway, next, Walker, Texas Ranger, and novels like Lonesome Dove. Never heard of it. Reinforced the Rangers' heroic brand, masking the agency's troubling and notoriously violent history. Um, Not only did uh, Rangers engage in the suppression of indigenous people like uh, the Comanche, Comanche, uh, the recapture of enslaved black people and the raiding of Mexican communities. Uh, And they they did all of this with overwhelming unnecessary force, earning them a reputation as a ruthless, ruthless gang of fighters whose methods methods blurred the line between law and lawlessness. So there you have it, folks. There you go. (laughs) Okay. So Texarkana residents were on edge and reports to police of prowlers in the area rose. The Texarkana rumor mill began churning out stories. Uh, A man who left town for a short time was alleged to be the killer who had been captured and kept in secret by the Texas Rangers. Although I wouldn't put it past him, this one is a stretch. But this rumor was dashed when... The man came home. (laughs) (laughs) Different residents that people found odd were rumored to be the killer. And the gossiping got so out of control that the local paper published an article telling folks that they would be told when the killer was identified. (laughs) So basically, knock that shit off. (laughs) Get that shit out of here like it's basketball. Uh, So police did not help matters much when they told Texarkana residents to oil up their guns and keep them handy. Do people in Texas do that automatically now? I, I don't Is know. Is that Texasist? <laughs> um, <laughs> so this resulted in some shootings and random gunshots heard throughout the town. To make matters even more confusing, at least nine men made false confessions to the murders. Yeah, maybe the false confession thing is a thing for another day, but... Yeah, that's unfortunate. Okay. Police only had a few suspects and theories. A former German prisoner of war who allegedly threatened several nearby residents became a suspect but was cleared. Months went by and the killing stopped. By October of 1946, the Rangers left town. Good riddance. So the FBI also left town, leaving the investigation in the hands of the local police. The only survivors provided scarce information about the killer. Jimmy Hollis thought uh, he was white. Mary Jean Luray thought he was black. And Katie Starks never saw her attacker. Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, was asked to provide a criminal profile for the killer. Among other things that he said was that he believed that the killer was white because he stated, quote, 
in general, Negro criminals are not that clever, unquote. Ooh, but they didn't know about Fruit Loops. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, Arkansas, Arkansas State Police Troopers noted that cars had been stolen on the nights of each of the attacks. One of the cars was located on June 28, 1946, in a parking lot. Police stopped. <laughs> that was just really funny. I'm sorry. Police, <laughs> police staked out the car only to find the person returning to it to be a woman named Peggy Swinney. Her husband, Ewell Lee Swinney, who was 29, then became the prime suspect in the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. He had a record, and his wife, Peggy, provided police with statements about how her husband was involved in the murders, and some of the information would have only been known to police. But Peggy and Peggy, the Skyler sisters. So Peggy kept changing her story and Yule Swinney refused to give any statements. Yule Swinney said he was innocent and his wife recanted her confessions eventually. Uh, Peggy, as his wife, could not be made to testify against him. The only evidence police had on Swinney was his wife's statements, and she was deemed an unreliable witness anyway. So all of the murder charges against Swinney had to be dropped. But because he was a repeat offender for car thefts, he was sentenced to 30 years to life for those offenses. Whoa. Uh, so yeah. Trigger warning for suicide. Uh, please leave the room or stop listening or fast forwarding. Cover your ears. Cover your ears, please. <laughs> um, protect yourselves. Take care of yourselves. On November 5th, 1948, two years after the murders, Henry Booker, a.k.a. Duty Tennyson, a young man of college age, committed suicide using cyanide and mercury. He left a suicide note that read, quote, why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I'd deal kid be kill Betty Joe Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Stark and tried to get Mrs. Stark, unquote. Over time, though, police began to doubt the claims in the note. They found other notes that made fanciful claims, and friends and family told police that he liked to tell stories. A friend told police that on the night that Virgil Starks was murdered, they had actually been at home playing games, so he couldn't have been there. Mm. So according to his uncle, a forensic psychiatrist named Dr. John Tennyson, Duty had connections to all of the victims. Duty was allegedly an usher at a theater where he saw some of the couples and allegedly in the same band as Betty Joe. Also, one of his friends lived with the sister of Katie Starks. But all of this was alleged by Dr. Tennyson and nothing could be confirmed. In January of 1949, a 26-year-old black man whose name we don't know was arrested for the violent double murder of a black couple. The female had been sexually assaulted. The man had worked for Virgil Starks, who, as you know, is one of the victims, and he lived on the property, on Virgil Starks' property, when the crime was committed. So although suspected, he was never charged with the Texarkana Moonlight murders, but the man confessed to the murder of the black couple and the sexual assault, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment for those crimes. Some people believe that the Zodiac Killer and the Phantom Killer are one in the same. Hmm. The Zodiac Killer is also an unidentified serial killer who plagued the San Francisco area in the 60s and 70s. Both were serial killers who mainly killed by shooting. They both attacked couples in secluded places, and on at least one occasion, the Zodiac Killer wore a hood. No matter what era, we uh, society people just love a good serial killer story. Am yeah. I right? Uh, whether it's in Texarkana or in the Bay Area in the 60s or 70s. So now we're going to get to where are they now? I'll tell you. Jimmy Hollis recovered from his skull fractures. He went on to marry and have seven children. Wow. He obtained his Master of Science and was rumored to be working for NASA in Houston, Texas at the end of his life. He passed away in his sleep at age 54. Mary Jean Larry did not fare so well. She suffered from what we now know as PTSD and ended up living in Billings, Montana, where she died of cancer in 1965 at the age of 38. Katie Starks eventually remarried and became Katie Starks Sutton. She died at, eight, at the age of 84 in 1994 and was buried next to her husband, Virgil. She was one of the last living victims involved in this case. 
Ewell Swinney was eventually paroled in 1973, and he died in 1994. In 2020, the FBI released declassified information related to this case, causing a resurgence of interest. There are about a thousand pages of information related to this case on the FBI website, in no particular order. Girl, (laughs) it's a mess. (laughs) Now now we're going to get into what we think. um, Well, we don't know who it is, so I don't know if we can talk about what we what we think made uh, him snap as well as our takeaways. So what do you got, Beth? (laughs) Yeah. So I was going to say without knowing who the perpetrator was, it's hard to say what motivated this killer, Mm -hmm. but just going on the facts of the crimes, there was definitely a sexual motive. He may have been resentful of couples, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, also focused on couples, and he at one time said that his motivation was getting, quote, revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him, unquote. Um, So maybe couples were a trigger. I don't know. Ah. Um, And I thought it was interesting how the um, killer made the male victim take off his pants yeah i don't really um know what that was about except for maybe it made the it, it was he was subduing yeah that was my male thought. a way victim. to yeah, yeah a way to subdue the male kind of like um what's that guy the golden state killer who would um Put plates oh, put on plates. the husbands? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd have them lay down and put plates on them and say if he heard the plates move, he would kill them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about it. In any other setting, if your pants are off when you are not terrified, no big deal. Take my pants off. Right. Come at me, bro. But if you're <laughs> terrified and your pants are off, like, I don't, I, I'm i thinking, I don't even know if I would know what the next move would be right. other right. than to try now? to survive. Yeah, it's, it's like a weird like um switch pants yeah. off um survival instincts reptilian brain is all that's working right now so anyway that's that's my thought uh, yeah i agree with you is what i'm saying and then i don't know if the starks attack was related or not but it is odd mm-hmm. that w- it was another couple that was attacked yeah definitely definitely so what are your thoughts well i can imagine that this was a terrifying time to be alive not only was it during jim crow I don't want to go there in the deep South, but there was an unknown killer targeting white folks. So everyone was terrified, but not necessarily for the same reasons. The first two survivors differed on whether the perpetrator was white or black, but just that sprinkle of a detail. What did they run with? He may have been black and that was enough to fuck things up as far as the safety (laughs) of the black community in Texarkana was concerned. First of all, there were a lot of lynchings in Texas. From this time period, there were hundreds that were reported. So that means there were lots that were not reported during this decade. And it didn't take much for a lynching to go down. Just the thought in the imagination of a white person could be deadly for a black person. And this case is like a casserole of horror. (laughs) The lover's lane, the unsolved murders, the fact that the person seemed to stalk the victims and terrorize them before their death, make them take their pants off. Uh, The terror of the white community, the terror of the black community. Um, And uh, this is still a mystery to this day, almost making it like legendary. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So where are the folks at Netflix or HBO? I'm manifesting this right now. From the, it's, this is how it's going to go. From the folks that brought you Watchmen and Lovecraft Country. Moonlight in Texarkana. Uh, also, just in a, a, a thought I had was this was a serial killer at the time, but at the time, this term serial killer didn't exist um, yeah. in the American vernacular. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month 
to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. That's it for the story. Now we're going to talk about how not to get murdered. So (laughs) if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So I thought of these ones after looking into this case and basically an emergency exit plan should be in place always in every scenario in your head in a public space space where are the exits but lastly if you park somewhere uh make sure you are parked in a fashion so that you can get the fuck out right away (laughs) if you need to quickly with as much ease as possible reverse reverse into those spots ladies great idea reverse into the spots i think uh this might have been a very different story if the folks did that so wow uh good good tip thank you uh now it's shout out time we're gonna shout out any content by or about any othered or marginalized folks or any true crime goodies uh so i just wanted to shout out house of secrets the bride deaths on netflix this show's wild. Have you heard of it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's about the deaths of eleven fam family members in New in in Delhi, uh, and it looks like it's a suicide because everybody's hanging. But could it have been a murder or something else? We don't know. I actually yeah, still crazy. don't know. I mainline the first few episodes, but uh, I I don't so I don't know what happens at the you end. But it's yet, riveting. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you got? So I wanted to shout out the podcast Legally Judgy. <laughs> oh, we got to connect with them. Can't forget yeah, that. Yeah. Lawyers, Alexa and Nicole talk about legal issues in pop culture. And uh, I'm, I apologize, but I don't know which is which, but one is a white lady and the other is a woman of color. And uh, it's really fun and funny. So uh, give it a listen. Color me subscribed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, shoot. That's it for today, Beth. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you all of you here at She Podcast for um, indulging us. Yes. <laughs> for listening to us, for rocking with us. Uh, and uh, since that's it, let's, uh, Beth, Tell the people where they can find us from here on out. Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That is all correct. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
about how I got them back. Download American Vigilante now. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.